Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I want to read you a couple paragraphs from a Globe and Mail article from a couple days ago. Canada Revenue Agency Commissioner Bob Hamilton says it is not worth the effort to conduct a full review of more than $15 billion in pandemic wage benefits the Auditor General has said may have been sent to ineligible recipients. Mr. Hamilton made his comments on Thursday to MPs in the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee, which is looking into Auditor General Karen Hogan's December audit report. That report said the Auditor General had found $4.6 billion in overpayments to ineligible recipients. An additional $27.4 billion may have been paid out to ineligible people and businesses. We bring in Duff Conacher. He is the guy behind Democracy Watch. Um, their tagline, cleaning up and making governments and corporations more accountable to you. Well, Duff... Hmm. This, this, this one, this seems like it would be right in your wheelhouse then. $15 billion may have just been lost or out there or sent to the wrong people. And apparently it's too much work to try and find it. What am I missing? Not much. Uh, the Auditor General says it should be examined more closely. And then if the circumstances uh, are such that um, the person could be forgiven, some of what they owe, if, uh, then that decision could be made at that time. But to just write it all off is a bad idea. And uh, this in- includes uh, also funds that went to big businesses. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, those should be examined as well because there's uh, lots of evidence that um, businesses that were profitable were essentially trying to get money that they were not entitled to as well. So it's not just about individuals. I've used the word when I was before you came on, and when I was setting this up, I, I I've used the word cavalier a couple times, maybe more than a couple times, and that's what it feels like. It feels like we're we're so far in debt, we're spending money hand over fist, we're in heading towards a, a recession. Apparently, we we're we're all feeling the pinch. It just feels cavalier to say this is not worth our while. I agree, very much uh, out of touch, and you know the Auditor General makes these assessments. The Auditor General does not audit every single dollar that is spent, the Auditor General chooses based on assessments of, uh, you know, the greatest amount of waste, institutions that uh, spend a lot of money, situations that are very smelly. So it's not like the Auditor General is saying and uses as uh, her own assessment uh, policy, oh, we have to watch every single dollar that goes out the door. Um, public servants are supposed to be doing that themselves, but an auditor can't do it all. Uh, the auditor is saying, though, this is an area of serious concern, and don't let it go. Uh, and CRA sent out the money. So uh, it's also just a conflict of interest for the head of the CRA to be saying uh, that we don't think we should look at ourselves uh, more closely as to what we did. Well, there's also yeah. the parts of the duff that look. If if this was if this was a Brinks truck that was driving down the highway and bags of money fell off the back and people jumped out of their cars and grabbed it, I get it. Really hard to find out who got that money. It's really difficult. But in this case, they sent it to an address or to a person. They know who this went to. Surely that would make it somewhat easy to track who got it. Yes, and they also have all their other information concerning their income. Uh, so did their income suddenly change, which would be an indication that you lost your job. And then, okay, if your income didn't change, then why were you suddenly getting a benefit? You seem to be con- continued to be working and earning a salary. So 
some pretty easy categories to uh, to look into there, um, given that people file their tax and income uh, statistics in detail and information in detail with the CRA, who also handed out the money. Um, you know, and lots of people are doing it online, so a, a search can even be automated. You're not having to go through paper records in a lot of cases. Yeah, so again, the Auditor General, I think, is right in this case, and the CRA, judging itself, and no one should ever be allowed to judge themselves, is saying, no, we did fine, and it's not worth looking further into into uh, what we did. And that's why we have these uh, watchdogs. They're not as independent or as empowered as they should be, all of them, but uh, we have the watchdog over spending the Auditor General, and another over transparency and ethics and ethics of lobbying and transparency and lobbying. We have these watchdogs because people can't judge themselves. And of course, uh, government agencies and the heads of government agencies would love to have a situation where they could decide whether things should be examined in more detail. Uh, But that's self-interested and we need to have a more objective take. And the more objective take is by the Auditor General who says we need to look at these billions. What if it's not fifteen billion? What if it was only five billion? And I say only. I mean, I'll, I'll take five billion if someone wants to give it to me. But what if it was only five billion dollars? Does that make it again more in line with the well? It's not worth it. Uh, no, I think when when you're in the billions, it's always worth it. Uh, it's a, you know relatively small percentage. The federal government during that period well, usually is spending around $200 billion a year during that period, uh, shoveled another uh, $350 to $400 billion out the door. So it's a small amount as a percentage of the overall spending, but it's still a lot of money. I mean, even if you divided it up and and handed it out to 35 million Canadians, um, if you're in the billions, you're talking about uh, each person getting $100 or more. That's yeah, a, they'd take it. I think, take I think it. everyone would want that back in their pockets if uh, instead of having to pay in taxes and have it go out to someone who didn't deserve it. It also, uh, beyond everything else, what it's, and again, I, I, I talked about this before you came on, but it strikes me this is a terrible, whether precedent is the word or just a, a if you skipped out on something on your taxes for $1,000, Duff, I bet they'd come after you. And yet it, like it, it just seems like a terrible message to send as well that we don't really some of some people we don't care we will let you get away with it others we're going to come after you with everything we got it, it seems odd and that is the actual context where there is ample evidence that over the last 15 20 years the CRA has targeted people who make very small mistakes or have oversights in worth very small amounts of money in their taxes while they do deals with people who are avoiding millions of dollars in taxes. Why? Based why? On, we don't we don't know why. We the inquiry has not happened. We had more than thirty thousand people call for an inquiry uh, during the last year of the Harper government in in twenty fifteen. And uh, Harper didn't set it up. And then the Liberals tried to sweep it under the rug as well. There was some evidence that came out about that, that the Liberals have on their board of the political, of the Liberal Party, a uh, person who had worked at the senior level with KPMG, and a lot of these cases were about uh, KPMG clients, uh, KPMG advising them to uh, use a scheme to avoid taxes that was actually not uh, a scheme that fit with the CRA rules. And uh, there was 
a committee hearing in the finance committee. They were about to hold the hearings, and then the case was there was a case before the courts, and so they stopped the hearing, and it's never been held again. And that goes back mm-hmm. now six years. Uh, so, and then lots of questions raised about what was the CRA doing, and has the CRA pursued these people in court, or have they done deals with them, letting them off the hook and their millions just because of high-powered lawyers and accountants uh, that have ties to the ruling party. And all these questions are still sitting out there. Uh, and this statement by the head that we're not going to look at these billions just raises more questions about the CRA and whether it is actually fairly and partially and effectively enforcing the rules and, and running programs of collecting taxes and making payments to Canadians, both individual Canadians. And as I mentioned as well, there's still lots of questions about big businesses that were profitable and weren't really hurt by the the pandemic uh, because some businesses were not hurt like grocery stores uh, those big businesses um, and and the uh, tens of millions of dollars that some of them got from uh, in pandemic relief when they there was really no evidence that they needed it or qualified it um, boy it, it is to me it is it's entirely frustrating and until someone can come up with a good explanation and I don't know that there is one for why this makes sense, I will continue to be frustrated because I, it just, the idea of just waving your hand at $15 billion, 15 hospitals, basically, if we're going to break down what they typically say is one of these things is worth. We're just saying 15 hospitals, we don't care. I mean, it just, it makes no sense. Um, no, Duff Conacher yeah, from, from Democracy. frustrated, and there should yeah. be an inquiry into all of this. Duff Conacher from Democracy Watch. We love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. My pleasure. Take care. It is. Uh, it should frustrate you too, I think. It's just, we're not talking about a few dollars. We're talking about 15 billion potentially. Now, we don't know how much exactly, but up to 15 billion, maybe more, and we don't care. So when, the, when your taxes go up next year, remember that we weren't caring about 15 billion, but we'll get you for the taxes on the back end because you'll pay to cover it up. You'll pay to, to fill it in. It, it's infuriating. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 1969 on this day, that song became a pretty relevant little bit of pop culture history because that was the last song. The Beatles were on a rooftop above Apple Records on Savile Row. And they were playing, as you know, a very famous, you've seen it, I'm sure, if you watch the the documentary that came out about a year ago, Get Back, that song was the last song they ever played live together in public. And then they were shut down because they had been, some police officers from London, some London Bobbies had been sent to Apple Records to deal with the noise complaints that were coming in, apparently, because the Beatles were drawing this huge crowd on the street below. And um, in the middle of the day, and it wasn't going to do. So a couple police officers went in there. One, a very young 19-year-old London Bobby, very young police officer. Uh, His name was Ray Dagg, and he eventually became a little bit of pop culture history because he was the guy that stopped the very last Beatles performance, live performance. Well, about a year ago, I was filling in for Bill Kelly in the morning, and we caught up with Ray Dagg, and we talked to him about that. Uh, many people, I don't know if everyone who's listening to this show listens to Bill, probably not. I hope many do. It's a great show. But not everybody did. So I said, you know what? On the day of the anniversary of the Beatles' last live performance together, let's bring on the guy that became that little bit of history again. Let's replay that interview with Ray Dagg. Um, he is 
an interesting fellow. Here is a little bit of Ray Dag talking about that day and about his life. Uh, thanks, Scott. Uh, it's a pleasure. So you lived this life of lovely, quiet anonymity for 50 years, and then all of a sudden this movie comes out, and now everybody wants to talk to Ray Dag. Is that pretty close? Uh, pretty close. Hundreds from all over the world, from too many countries to list. When you heard that this movie was coming out, did you expect that might happen? Because there had been other things and you had sort of slid under the radar. Did you think this would happen? Um, well, I need to take you back to 1970 when uh, the first Beatles film, Let It Be, came out. And I was in that for 10 minutes. And that caused a bit of furor afterwards. And I got recognized in the street and everything when I was in uniform. Um, but I thought that that had long gone. And I forgot this uh, it, it was in history, you know, I didn't realise it would ever come up again. But two years ago, Mr. Jackson and his crew found me and uh, the rest, you know. Mm. So the amazing part to me is you were a kid when this happened. I was amazed that you were just 19 when, when you were put into this position. Yeah, I was uh, about six months out of training school, yep. Were there a lot of 19-year-old constables at that time? It seems incredibly young to be working as a police officer. Well, at that, that, at that particular station, there'd be about uh, three or four 19-year-olds hmm. out of a complement of 100 or so. And was that your usual area? Was foot patrol in that area part of your regular job? Uh, I used to patrol that area sometimes, but sometimes I'd get other areas to patrol. Uh, but on this particular day, I was checking in with the station to sign on for work and they said well before you go anywhere go and shut that noise down <laughs> all right and did you know what that noise was when they told you that uh no i didn't well i knew it was coming from apple so i suspected it was the beatles because i'd walked past there many times before uh but i didn't really know they were on the roof i only found that out when i got inside and uh, it wasn't really the noise so much as the people that were gathering in the street which were blocking i mean there were thousands and thousands of them so it was blocking regent street which was blocking piccadilly which is blocking piccadilly circus shaftesbury avenue the tri the traffic in the west end that afternoon was chaos ray were you a beatles fan back then because that would have been i mean you would have been about the perfect age to be someone who was a diehard uh yes i i, I like the music i can't say I was a Beatles fan. I can't say I bought any of their records. I was more, um, I'm sorry to say this, Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> well, nothing wrong with that. They, You know, you didn't have to shut them down, but that would have been maybe even cooler for you. Uh, I've had <laughs> great trouble shutting down Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> I probably well, when, singing along. Well, okay, so it's a long time ago. I mean, it is It is 52 years ago now, which seems unbelievable to, to think about. But when did you realize as you were going into the building there or when you were leaving the station, when did you realize that I'm going to have to tell the Beatles to stop playing? Did that sort of cross your mind or was it just, uh, just go and make them stop? I thought, well, I'll go and see what's happening and why the noise is up there. Initially, I thought they were inside an upper studio or something with microphones blaring out. But while I was in there, I found out they were on the roof. And uh, then I realized, I mean, they tried to stall me and delay me for about, well, they did. They managed to stall me for about 30 minutes uh, before I got up there. So they got through a fair few songs before I got up there. 
we hear lots over here in North America, especially about, you know, people accusing police of misbehavior and things like that these days. Um, I understand things were a little bit different then. They don't not then people didn't have cameras on every phone and things like that. But you were among you and your sergeant who came in later in this movie are among the most polite police officers I've ever seen in my life. Did you know you were being filmed at that time or were you simply just that polite always? Um, I hope I was polite always, but I knew I was being filmed. When I walked in the door, I saw one of these two-way mirror things, which I'm not supposed to be able to see behind, but I could see something moving behind it. And when I got to the reception, in the flowers on the desk, there was a microphone. All right, so so you had a, you had a good idea. Better be on good behavior here because I might be on film somewhere. Absolutely. In fact, I said it to my colleagues. Oh, did you? Just to just be yeah, aware? I, I, yeah, Ray Shaylock, who was with me, um, I said to him that uh, I think we're being filmed here, so we better behave ourselves. You did say, as I picked up on there, and correct me if I'm saying anything wrong here, but I do recall you saying that they'd better stop at some point or there might be some arrests. Did you, were you serious about that? Could you have ever imagined yourself leading Paul McCartney out of the Apple Studios building in handcuffs? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, I'm afraid, uh, if you want the detail of it, uh, there were several offences they've committed but unfortunately, there was no power of arrest on private premises. Um, but even at 19, I gambled they didn't know that. So huh. that's what I threatened them with, if you like. How long... So you're up there on the roof. They're still playing. Was it as loud on the roof as it was on the street? Or were, the, were you able to, to talk because the speakers were facing outward? Uh, no, it was extremely loud, extremely noisy. If you look at the film, you'll see me talking to one side with Malcolm Evans, who was their yes. road manager, the late Malcolm Evans, God bless him. And uh, I, it was at that stage that I lost it, if you like. I, I was fed up with being delayed all the time. And I said to him, tell them they're all under arrest. And he said, what for? <laughs> and I said, highway obstruction and obstructing police in the execution of their duty. Although I said it, I had no power of arrest. And were they playing the noise as a defense that, oh, I can't hear you, I'm sorry, can't hear you, officer, I, I can't really make out what you're saying. Were they using that to their advantage? No, uh, they weren't. They didn't say anything. Malcolm Evans went over and disconnected their amp plugs. And that too is on the film. And you'll see them putting it back in. At that <laughs> stage, he says to them, because they haven't got their amp plugs in, you're going to be arrested unless you stop. So it's then they said, can we do one more? And I said, yes. And they did the last song and changed the words of it. Something like the law's coming and we got to stop or something. So you knew you were going to, when you knew that this movie was going to be made, you had a pretty good idea that you were going to make an appearance. Have you watched yourself in this movie again? Yeah, we were invited, uh, my wife and I, to the uh, cast and crew premiere, which was in Leicester Square. And what does a 72-year-old Ray Dag think of a 19-year-old Ray Dag when he sees him on the screen? Um, <laughs> well, age brings you a certain wisdom, which I didn't have at the time. Um, I was a bit, let's say, gung-ho. When you watch it, do you, do you watch it with a point of pride that you handled yourself 
well under the circumstances or are you someone who looks at it and goes, oh, I wish I'd done that different. If I knew I was, if, since I knew I was going to be filmed, I wish I'd done that different. Well, bear in mind the outcome, which was nobody got arrested and they stopped. I'm extremely proud of what I did. And indeed, I've had tens and hundreds of messages from police officers all over the world wow. saying that uh, I did a very excellent job up there. Yeah. No, I have, listen, again, we, we, we know how these things could potentially go. I can't imagine, as you say, when you were laughing, I can't imagine you arresting someone or even trying, but we know how these things could go. Do you remember the conversation that you then had as you were leaving um, once they stopped and everyone, you were dispersing everyone, do you remember the conversation walking back with your sergeant or your partner back to the station or back at the station after this was done? Well, no, there was no conversation because I waited at the top of the stairs to make sure they stopped. And when they stopped, I went down the stairs. Um, they brushed past me at some stage and we went down and we had to clear the crowds outside to release the traffic in the West End. So we each went our separate ways, moving people on, and we didn't manage to talk about it at all. But I can't imagine, Ray, if it, look, if I'm, uh, and I understand maybe a different time, but if this happens to me as part of my daily duties, at some point I'm telling someone, you will not believe what I had to do or what my day was like today. There had to be someone you chatted with about this afterwards. Oh, no. You, you asked me if I spoke to my sergeant and my colleague at the time. Uh, unfortunately, the whole station knew about it. And when I got back to the canteen, they'd put a chair with a throne and said, superstar, sit yourself. <laughs> that went on for about uh, three or four weeks. Really? Yeah, they take the mick a lot, the police force. Did you... Um you obviously at that moment didn't realize, because we never know at a time that something's happening that we are going to be involved. If, if you're involved in something that's a historic moment or a moment, of, you never realize at the moment that it's that. But did you... I didn't, did realize, you... I didn't realize that at that time it was it. And indeed, I didn't realize it was their last concert until two years ago when Mr. Jackson and his team found me. Come on, you didn't know for all those years that it was the last time? didn't have a clue wow okay when you when you said earlier on though that you were recognized after the first movie came out what would people say when they saw you in uniform walking along the streets were they hey you know great job patting you on the back or were they giving you grief for having stopped it well no i could do a dreadful american accent here but i won't um most <laughs> of them said oh you're the policeman i've just seen in the beatles film uh could i have your autograph could you help me cross the road? Could I have my photograph with you? Oh, so it was good. It was good. Oh, yeah. It was nothing abusive. It was a bit funny. I mean, 19 years of age, signing my autograph. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's... I, I was wondering if people would be sour about it, but no, it sounds like you became a, you became a little legendary over there. At, at what point... So even though you didn't know that that was their last performance. How long after did you realize that you had been there for part of a record that they had made, that they were recording for an album? Um, well, the police, they had to ask the police for me, for their permission for me to appear in the film. So the commander and I went down to the studios in Wardour Street and we watched it. And then I realized exactly what had happened, how much had been filmed, and uh, the position we were all in. 
Did you, Ray, did you over the years mention this to a lot of people? Was this a conversation starter for you or would, or did it sort of just completely fade into oblivion and for years this never really came up? No. Um, in the various companies I've worked for, uh, my colleagues uh, found out and done some spoof videos at conferences and things. <laughs> Inevitably, so, they found it. Because you, you left the police, right? You went into sales a few years after this. Yeah, I did. I went into sales and then into electronic worldwide sales. And, and they would always find out. But, I mean, it sounds like it would have been an absolutely brilliant way to open a door to, to make a sale or to make a deal with someone, walk in and, and use this as the icebreaker. Oh, no, we didn't use it for any customers at all. It was for internal sales conferences once a year when we had our motivational sales conference. And at the end of it, they'd play this. <laughs> but they voiced it over differently so that I looked a bit more worse than I was, you know. <laughs> oh, we've just got a, a few seconds left here. But have you ever, did you ever have any reason? Now, Peter Jackson called you down to, to, to look at the, the film. Or, or sorry, the, 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 uh, the film director at the time back in 1970 called you down to look at it. And then Peter Jackson. Did you ever have any reason to ever have any interaction with the band ever again or anybody from the band? No, never since then. Uh, it's 52 years ago, and I'm not sure. I can't quite remember whether I spoke to one or two of them when they passed me on the stairs. Hmm. I, I don't really can't remember. It's that long ago. What's prompted my memory is seeing the film when Peter Jackson's team showed me the film. Then, of course, it brought the memories back. Yeah, because I halfway expected when this movie came out, and, and we, we've heard that Paul McCartney and, and Ringo Starr both very much endorse and, and enjoy this movie. I, I kind of wondered if one or either of them would have would have reached out and said, hey, you know what? No hard feelings or whatever else. It doesn't sound like they had any, but I, I wondered if they would have reached out or their people. No, I, I wouldn't think they'd be bothered by it. Uh, a retired ex-policeman like me. Yeah, a retired ex-policeman who was very much involved in their last public moment. I, I don't know. I, uh, listen, before we let you go, I, as you said off the top, Ray, there have been lots and lots and lots of expressions of interest and people reaching out to you these days. What's the strangest request you've got so far? Because there have to be some that you sort of just shook your head at. Um, to print a photo of the film Somebody asked me on Twitter, and my handle, if anybody wants to ask me any questions on Twitter, is at Chelsea Bronco, Chelsea Bronco. But the strangest request was um, to print a picture of the film, sign it, and send it to people in America. Well, you know what? I bet you that that won't be the only autograph, uh, autograph request you get again. You signed a bunch back in the day, and I, I bet you'll be signing some more these days because uh, it is it is a moment in history one of those ones you stumble into and probably well, I'm sure never expected at the moment but boy it is now uh, Ray um, we really sorry go ahead I was just going to say it, it's the most surprising thing that's happened to me 52 years later I still I have no doubt people are interested in me I have no doubt, but um, I say one of those funny things that uh, you wake up in the morning to go to work and who would have ever expected this would have been the outcome right uh, unbelievable. But these things happen. But these things happen. There is Ray Dag. That was, uh, that was a fun chat. That again, that was, uh, we, we chatted, chatted with him about a year ago, right? When Get Back came out the movie, but, um, that was on the morning show filling in. So I thought we would, uh, do that today on the anniversary. Interesting guy. Talk about, talk about those moments when you just stumble into history. It's like a Forrest Gump. 
You just, you didn't plan it. You show up for work that day and who knew what would happen? It could happen to any of us. I, not the Beatles, but things like that it happen to anybody. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and of Calm Choice Realty and a man who every year is in the running for the Dundas Citizen of the Year, whether he wins it or not. His name is Don Robertson, joins us now. Don, how are you? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I am, uh, you know what, back from vacation. Half of me says that I am great because I'm rested. The other half says, why am I not still back on vacation? But it's okay. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be back, sort of. <laughs> sort of. When you're away, just just salads and oh yeah, drinks. yeah. No, we um we had been on a cruise ship, and one of the um uh, I will tell you this because I'm sure you're a man who can understand this. We were we one of the dinners we had was at this steakhouse on board, and I decided to pay the upcharge of a few dollars, like thirty, and get the thirty six ounce tomahawk steak, which was <laughs> about the size of a football. And um, made it through, made it through, had some interesting dreams that night and some substantial meat sweats, but boy, was it delicious. I will probably never do that again because to get that at a steakhouse around here, is probably 150 bucks. But, you know, I said for the, with the price being what it was and that I could afford it for not being much, I'm going to try it. And my wife thought I was insane and the people who were with, they thought I was insane, but mm, was it good, Don? Just couldn't eat for two days afterwards. I'm thinking they were all right. That's a lot of meat. It was it was essentially the hawk of a cow. <laughs> the, the entire hawk. If you look at a cow and go, wow, look at that thigh. That's about the size of what I ate. It was um <laughs> anyone who's had one of these or or watched on YouTube, because you know what? You can go on YouTube now and they have all these barbecue videos and almost yep. exclusively not to you know, paint everyone with the same brush, but the people who do these videos tend to be, um, what's the nice way of describing them? More corpulent. Fat. Okay. Well, you picked the simple word. I was trying to pick the one that at least, at least make it sounds nice, but yes. Um, a little, a little it, chubby. A little, like they've had more than a few 36 ounce steaks. And, um, well, but that makes sense. You don't want some bean pole on there telling you to eat this and eat that, it's all good because you can say, well, you don't eat anything. So it's kind of proportionate. I, Sue's got me a green egg a couple of years ago for my birthday. I started watching some of the stuff, how to cook things on YouTube, and you're right. I mean, they don't cook anything small. Like there's no, no nothing small. Like you needed a front-end loader to put the white steak, probably a tomahawk steak, on the green egg. I'm going, who's eating that? They have a party for seven? I guess now I know I could just have you over. Well, it did say that it was for two, but I just ignored the information and uh, <laughs> plowed ahead. And uh, it was, uh, I'm saying, it was, if you ever get a chance, and, and now I know some people, if you're a, like a vegetarian or a vegan, you've probably already turned the station because you're outraged that I would eat this much meat in one sitting. Uh, I don't normally do this. We, I, I, you know, I'm normally, we don't eat a lot of red meat, period, anymore. Which again was kind of okay. We're away. Here's a chance. We're going to try this. We're going to make it. Give it a go. Um, I would, uh, Don. You know what? If it's done right, boy, it was, it was worth it. It was worth it. That's well, all I'll say. Good. 
So anyway, but yes, back and um, raring to go. And we've been back here for a few days and uh, appreciate you jumping on board. And let me start with this, Don, because um, I just got back. I think I had just gotten back from being away and I saw this story and all the meat that was in my gullet. Um, you know how when you drink something, you do a spit take when you hear something outrageous? I, I almost did a meat spit take because it was so outrageous. <laughs> Gary Bettman with a straight face, an NHL commissioner with a straight face saying NHL teams don't tank to win the draft lottery. Has Gary Bettman, is he on some sort of meat drunkenness thing? Is he is he out of his mind or is he just trying really hard to spout a company line that he hopes somebody will believe even though nobody does? Well, sometimes I think he would be better off not saying anything about that type of thing, but I guess if you're asked, you have to answer the question. The problem, as I see it, is is if he actually believes that somebody's going to tank or he suggests somebody's going to tank, I'm sure he would have to fine or sanction them somehow for doing so. So he's better off going with the hope and prayer that nobody is, and as far as he's concerned, nobody's going to, and let's move on. You know, the fact that... Uh, Montreal and Arizona uh, haven't won a game since the middle of November has no bearing on, you know, Connor Bedard. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. I just, I think he diminishes himself when he says things that he has to know are absolutely untrue. Look at the Montreal Canadiens roster right now. If you are a player on the Montreal Canadiens, now I'm not saying they're tanking, although I think they are. But if you if you are a player on that roster who has a hangnail right now, you're out for three to four weeks. Everybody in their lineup is out right now with an injury. They have basically got their AHL team from Laval playing. Is that tanking? Yeah. Are those players trying to win? Yes, those players are trying to win. I don't dispute that. But you have brought up players that you are basically almost ensuring are not going to win many games. That, to me, is the definition of tanking. It is, but again, he can't, if he acknowledges it or even shows that he might be entertaining the idea that somebody's tanked, as commissioner, he has to do something about it. I mean, he's the one that brought in, and, and I didn't agree at the time, but I look back at it and you take your time to think about it. The lottery doesn't ensure that you'll get the number one pick. It means your odds are best but it doesn't mean for sure you're going to get it. You know, Ottawa or Edmonton went from, after getting two in a row from like fourth to getting the first pick again, but that's really a fluke. But he has to defend the credibility of the league, even though some people, including yourself, it seems, would think it's a bit of a nose stretcher. Well, no, he's, he's right about one thing, is they do have this draft lottery, so tanking... Losing on purpose, and not even, I'm not sure that I incorporate the word tanking with losing on purpose. I think tanking is putting yourself in the best position to lose credibly. And that's what, for a team like Montreal, I know Vancouver and others, you're, you're not, I don't believe anyone is throwing games, Don. I don't believe that for a second. You're just no. making sure that you don't put out the most competitive lineup that is fighting through injuries and 
doing everything humanly possible to win. But with the draft lottery, he, he, Bettman is correct. The draft lottery prevents, unlike in the NFL, where the last place team gets the first overall pick, it, it sure, it does mean that you don't necessarily get to have the first overall pick, but your chances are way, way better. Uh, they are. And when something is going on with a team, everybody's fingerprints are on it. The trainer gets it. I mean, the trainer. The trainer's liable to say, you know, I don't think we should put that Radley kid in for a couple games. Why? Well, he's limping. Okay, out he comes, right? Like it's that uh, Caulfield the other day, I, I read in, a, in the newspaper, so I know it's true, um, that he would be playing if they were in the playoff hunt. Now, yeah. no, that, tells I, I, all, that tells you all you need to know. And, and I can say, and I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's realistic to say, look, if you have no chance of winning a, 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 this year, or no chance of making the playoffs, and a guy is seriously injured, it does make some sense to get a head start on whatever injury recovery is needed. However, again, using the Canadians as the example, they have an awful lot of guys then, Don, who you need to get a head start on because there are so many. And, and you look around, does any other team have the kind of guys out with injury. So it's, you know, you, again, I don't think they are throwing. This is not shoeless Joe Jackson. I don't think they're throwing games. They are just not doing everything oh. humanly possible to put their best lineup on the ice at all times. Yeah, no, no. For sure, it's not a player's Um. Um, it's, it's not a player's thing. I'm not exactly sure how I want to phrase this. But you're right, because if the guys from the Laval Rockets are there, they're busting their butt because it's their chance to prove they can actually play in the NHL. Right? So the players aren't bailing out on anything. Right. But if the trainer and the assistant GM's wife thinks that, you know, Bradley's got a bit of a boo-boo, we better sit out. I mean, every. Everybody's got a hand in it because the guys off the ice, pardon me, um, they all want the big pick because they're going to be there for a while. They're not playing. You know, when you start cherry picking three or four good defensemen, I need the goalie isn't going, really? Why are you doing this to me? You take one more defenseman, all my hamstring's going to blow up. Right? Like everybody's gone then. I've tried often to think of what's the best way to do this. And I don't know that there's a perfect answer to do this because even if you have the draft lottery, as, as we both believe teams find ways to make sure they are not as competitive as they possibly could be. Um, and I've tried to think about, is there a proper answer? I think a draft lottery is better than the NFL system. Honestly, I do. But... What I mean, Don, what would happen if you said we're having the draft lottery, but the team that win, or we don't even need the draft lottery, the team that is going to get the first overall pick is the team that finishes 17th. So the first one that misses the playoffs, which at least shows they were trying to win, that simply losing doesn't guarantee you that. You still have to win in order to get to that position. Now, it would defeat the purpose in the one hand of helping the worst team in the league. But it would ensure that you're still trying to win. Really, would it? I mean, are you sure it would? 
I agree with your point that, that you would, it doesn't make, in this case, the bottom half of the NHL any better. But if you're sitting in 15th place and Connor Bedard's on the line, you think, you think the bean counters are doing the points going, you know what? We can miss the two playoff games we're going to get because we're getting swept four straight. We'll, we'll take our chance on missing those. If we can end up in 17th, then the guys will be jockeying for 17th. Now, the guys below them, I grant it, um, probably 21 through 17 are going to put a full effort in. But the guys at the bottom aren't going to get any better. All right, what if you flip it then? What if you give the highest lottery chances to the teams that finish 17th and then 18th? And so, so if you finish dead last, you get the lowest chances. So it 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 it, it it's discourages you from losing all the games. You've got to get in there to try and win some games just to try and get the better opportunities. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a hybrid of what you're talking about and everything else, but there is a... I mean, you do have to give the guys at the bottom, even if they're at the bottom due to poor management. And the other reason this it's a, it's a far bigger conversation this year is Connor Bedard. Of course. Like the last three yeah. or four years, there hasn't been a, you know, Connor McDavid, Wayne Gretzky, Scott Radley type player available, right? But this year there is. Yeah, no, it, it clearly, I mean, and look at look at the Leafs. I mean, Austin Matthews clearly, as an example, the Edmonton Oilers. Now, neither team has done anything in the playoffs, but clearly their fortunes in the regular season anyway have turned around by winning the draft lottery. So um, anyway, it's I, I, as I say, I, I, I found it hilarious hearing Bettman say this and thinking, my goodness, uh, you are you are quite an actor if you can say this with a straight face and truly try and convince people. Because there is no chance that Gary Bettman believes what he says. There, there is no chance that he believes that teams are not tanking. Again, whatever your definition of tanking is, I, I mean, if, if he's saying it that he doesn't believe that any team is skating out onto the ice that night with the intent of allowing the other team to win, I agree with him. But if he's saying no teams, no organizations are weakening their rosters to enhance their chances, uh, I guess well, it's all in definition. Let's, let's look at a real prime example. Austin Matthews is absolute proof that getting a superstar first overall will guarantee you what success in the playoffs. Well, zero. I mean, you want you want him. But it still doesn't put you over the top. Connor McDavid, I mean, I don't think the Oilers have got into the third round with him in the lineup. Nope. 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 Right? And both, uh, both, both premier players. So, yeah, does it, does it help? Do you have to make the fight? Can you wish and hope you get them? Doesn't guarantee you success. I mean, it's a different discussion for a different day. We got to take a break here, but. It would be very interesting to see what would be happening in Edmonton and in Toronto. Uh, you can, if you want to pick out a, a different superstar, you can do the same. If we did not have a salary cap right now, if you were, free, if the Leafs were free to build around a superstar because they believe that they've got the piece that you know that you can do, like back in the Gretzky days and back in the Mario Lemieux days, if you can build your roster, it doesn't matter about salary. 
be very interesting to see how different we might perceive them. Because what if there had been a salary cap when Wayne Gretzky was playing? Or when Mario Lemieux was playing? I mean, some of those teams that Lemieux played on with Pittsburgh and Edmonton with with Wayne, um, they were loaded. You'd never be able to have all those guys on your team under a salary cap. Never. And how different then would we see them? Because they both won multiple, multiple championships. How different, if at all, would we see them? How would their how would their stats have been different? It all would have been very different. Anyway, so Don, uh, while I was away, the Ticats made the big splash that they were trying to make, and they have signed Bo Levi Mitchell to be their quarterback. Reports from Three Down Nation say he will be the second highest paid player in the league. Is this the move that puts the Ticats over the top and finally gets in that Grey Cup they've been missing out on since 1999? Or is this going to blow up in their face? Well, they think so. Yeah, clearly. Which I, which I guess is important if you're going to pay them all that money. I guess the, the only thing that I would, and uh, football not being my first sport, but the, the thing that would bug me is they've signed a proven winner and a historical all-star, but the problem is it's part of history. And last year, a young guy beat him out of the starting job. And now all of a sudden, he's worthy of making the second highest salary in the league, but he wasn't a starter with Calgary. So I don't know where Calgary ranks in preparation and preparedness for this season, but if they're on the Ticats and Calgary on equal footing we now have Calgary's backup quarterback. And I'll yeah. tell you, historically, the Toronto Maple Leafs for years would hire a, or pay a defenseman or a forward the equivalent to another superstar, thinking that if they paid him the same, he would be as good as that other player, Larry Murphy or Dion uh, Phaneuf. Like, if we pay them the same as the best defenseman in the NHL, they'll be that good. That theory never works. It's, uh, I mean, look, I, I really hope that this is the time. Uh, the fan base deserves it, and they have been more than patient, and they're going to be hosting the Grey Cup. The city of Hamilton is this coming year, and I really hope it works. My, and I don't want to be negative about this because uh, he does have a history of winning. He was one of the, his per- winning percentage, one of the best quarterbacks ever. The one concern I have, Don, is that when I heard this, my initial response was flashbacks to Jason Moss and to Casey Printers and probably a couple others along the way who were the guys, as you say, you brought them in, they were the biggest, and it just didn't work out. And I hope this is the exception. I I really do. I really hope that he comes in and finds the magic that he had in Calgary, and now that he's the guy again, and has a path to the starting job because he sure isn't going to be a backup here at the money they're paying him. Um, now that he knows he's the guy that he just plays free and easy, but um, as I say, the, the name Casey Printers immediately came to mind, and it was like, oh boy, um, please don't let that be the thing again. Uh, make no mistake, I want the Hamilton Ticats to win the Grey Cup. I think that would be wonderful. Everything is better in our community when the Ticats win. Everything's better in the Toronto community when the Toronto Maple Leafs win. 
but I really hope the Ticats win. But the people that are making that made this decision, are they not the ones that decided Clarels couldn't play or couldn't help them anymore? Well, I mean, Caleros was injured. There's no question. Caleros was injured when uh, when he was sent on his way, and it was unclear that he was going to play again. Um, but and it's not and and you know it, it, it's hard. It's a hard position, but it's a lot of money. And you know that when you pay someone a lot of money, now all the quarterbacks in the league are going to be paid something in this ballpark, but it means there's someone else you're not being able to pay because there's a salary cap. So he really, he has to be excellent. If, if Bo Levi Mitchell is not excellent, you're screwed from the beginning because you've tied up so much money in a guy who's not carrying yeah. his weight. If he is excellent, you're very happy to pay him the money that you've paid him and you can work with it. But he's got to be great. So you you have to believe that the guy that you've signed is, as you said, Don, is not last year's backup Bo Levi Mitchell is two or three years ago still superstar Bo Levi Mitchell. And if he is, then you know what? It's a great signing in all likelihood. Well, you know, to, to, to play at the top of your game and, and to be an elite athlete, you have to have tremendous pride and drive. And he knows the type of league this is, and he knows the community, so he says it's one of the reasons he wanted to sign here. He'll know the pressure he's under, and let's hope that that drive and that willingness to be a superstar again combined with his abilities to make him perform and the team be successful. That's what you gamble on when you pay that much money um, and take a bit of a risk. My point about Claros was is that yeah, he was, he'd been injured a couple times in a row, right? Dane comes in and does really well. Okay, you make a call. I, I'm not in the football business. It doesn't look like that was the perfect read um, because he's won, you know, two great cups since he left. Now, the, now they're picking up maybe the Claros from the Calgary Flames. Like he's, he didn't have a great year. Maybe he's going to come in here and be a superstar. Maybe they're that good at selecting. But one thing for sure that we know, there'll be a thousand judges out there determining their success. Well, I'd say there are going to be 24,000 every game. And yeah, it will be, it, it, it is um, that there are, I would suggest that uh, mm, since Casey Printers came, and what year was that? Maybe 2012. I'd have to go back and look. Since Casey Printers came, there have not been higher expectations, I would suggest, at the quarterback position. And so there it's gonna be there, it's gonna be a lot expected on him. And I mean, look, he's played a long time, and I don't think he's gonna be overwhelmed by the spotlight. Uh, I don't think that at all, but it's best put it this way, best for him to come in and have a really fast start as opposed to something else. Um, Casey Printers, wow, way earlier than that, 2007 and eight. Time flies. Um, 15 years. We'll see. But uh, we're going to get to look at Bo Levi Mitchell anyway for uh, for a while. So we'll see how this thing goes. And hopefully, touching wood, uh, hopefully it works out. There's been a lot of celebrities already. This is another one of those years, it seems, that every day we're hearing about someone. Uh, just learned moments ago that Cindy Williams, who played Shirley on Laverne and Shirley, died today. But also, 
Bobby Hull, who the Golden Jet, who was um, everybody knows Bobby Hull from his playing days with the Blackhawks and then in the WHA with the Winnipeg Jets. And Don Robertson, who was with me, uh, Don had some connections. Not only, um, well, his two kids played, or two of his kids played for you over the years. What's your best Bobby Hull story? Um, I can't tell you on the radio. Um, <laughs> That's probably true. And there's a whole bunch of them. Um, I think, uh, well, I think the, uh, actually the passion he showed for coming to watch his boys play hockey. Uh, probably something that he didn't have much of an opportunity to do when they were young and he was playing and on the road and uh, doing a number of things. But he he seemed to take quite you know quite a bit from watching uh, Junior and uh, Blake uh, play for the Flamborough Moscow Models. You know we won an Ontario Championship. Uh, we almost went to the Allen Cup that year, but we won it the next year with Blake. Uh, it was pretty satisfying for him because he'd come and he'd, he actually would sit and watch it and, you know, you could talk to him after the game um, and he would critique it, and, but he just quite enjoyed it. And I found it uh, odd. I found a, a, a story on social media today where um, he was getting slapped around pretty hard for some of uh, his unprofessional antics personally. But the part that I found a little disappointing was that he said he was totally estranged from his entire family after the divorce of his first wife. Well, the story I just told you says that's just blatantly not true. Now, uh, I knew Bob uh, pretty well. I mean, he came to our celebrity golf tournament uh, we had for Duck Sports Bar in Dundas and was helpful on anything I ever asked him to do. <laughs> and uh, Junior lived with uh, my parents here. He played, so he looked at me one time and I thanked him. He said, you took my boy. in." So, I mean, he always appreciated things like that, but his look at, he didn't have a perfect life. I mean, he, uh, the abuse scandal and everything else. I mean, you have to take the good with the bad and recognize it wasn't a perfect life, um, from a marriage standpoint. Uh, but when you talk about just a pure hockey side, he was quite, um, quite proud of the fact that he was the first ever million dollar athlete. And when he told me that, I got thinking, well, lots of guys make a million bucks. And he says, I'm talking about 1972, you know, and he, and he tells an interesting story. So he's in the, he's in uh, doing the press conference in Winnipeg and his agent is with him and they give him the check prior to, of course, they get all kinds of great big checks are flying around. Right but he actually wanted to check before they did this huge announcement. So they had the meeting and everything else. And he, his uh, agent went to the bank to make sure the bank, the check would clear. And Bobby says, gave me the thumbs up. And uh, away we went with the press conference. He just wasn't a hundred percent sure he wanted to blow everything in case the check wasn't going to clear, but he was the first million dollar athlete and he was very charismatic and, uh, Always had time for people. He just never said no to an autograph. I, I have a Bobby Hall autograph, and I didn't get it. My dad was in Winnipeg one time when I was very young. He was there on business and somehow ran into him at a hotel. And I have an autograph from Bobby Hall. But I'll tell you a funny story. So years ago, and again, I'm, I, I was way off on Casey Printer. So let's go with 15 years ago, maybe more. If you may remember this, uh, there was an effort made to try and bring back the WHA. They were going to have WHA 2. 
and yep. Bobby Hull was the was the face of it. He was the commissioner. And back when CHCH, when Mark Hebsher and Donna Skelly were on, I think it was called Live at Five Thirty or Square Off or whatever it was then. Um, they had me on because I had written something about it. So they had me on and Bobby Hull on as the two guests. And I said, right off the bat, Mark Hebsher came to me and said, uh, what do you think? And I said, they will never drop the puck in this league. This will never happen. Those were the last words I got for the for the entire segment. Bobby Hull then jumped in and proceeded to verbally rip me up one side and down the other and talk about what an idiot I was and how I'll never believe it until the puck is on the ice. And on and on and on, and uh, yes, I always thought it was—I uh, always thought it was very funny that I got chewed out by Bobby Hull on TV. And um, I take some—I take some comfort in the fact that for once I was right in the end. But it's okay; it was my—it uh, was that was my—that was my sole conversation with Bobby Hull. I got one sentence, and then I listened, which was fine. But you—you you were both—you were both getting paid to do what you did. You were. You were, well, you weren't getting paid because I was on that thing, but you were, you were there to be right. And Bobby Hall was doing, doing what he was paid to do. And that was to tell you it was going to take off and it was going to be this and it was going to be that and everything else. You know, when I saw Scott, uh, and, and that was a pretty good invitation though, because Big Bob had a, had a deep voice. A growly uh, voice. When, I, yeah. when he made it in 84, I kind of shook my head this morning. I think in a while. There's no reason for him to have made it to 84. I mean, I saw him. The last time I saw him was the uh, Harbor Castle in Toronto. And I was standing with a couple of buddies. And they said, there's Bobby Hall. Everybody's around him, right? And they said, you know him. Go say hi. I said, I don't know if he'll remember me. And I walked over and I waited. And it was uh, he was you know signing all kinds of life. And he always called me Donald. And I said, are the boys here? And he pointed around the corner at the bar. So I went around and um, talked to Bobby Jr. And Brett was there. They were just quietly in the background, right? But Dad was still the star. And Brett uh-huh. Hall was going into the Hall of Fame that night. And yeah, but Bobby was the first. Home, but- Bo- yeah, but Bobby was the trailblazer. And I'll say, we got to take a quick break here. We talked about this. I don't think it was with you I talked about. It was somebody else um, recently we talked about this. One thing about Bobby Hall and others of his vintage, his autograph was always beautiful. It wasn't a scribble, but yeah. Bobby Hall's autograph was calligraphy. And all the guys back then were, and they took a few seconds, you know, instead of just a shh, they took five seconds maybe to actually sign their name so you could read it and so it meant something. I always thought that was, that's a different time when you, you looked at those autographs and went, yeah, I know, I can tell you who that was. And it's beautiful. It was if you ever see a Bobby Hall autograph, it's gorgeous. And I don't know that he was artistic in any way, but man, he could write an autograph. Well, he, he did it a couple times. He did it a couple times. Uh, Don Robertson, always love having you on on Monday evenings. Thank you for this today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Scott. And by the way, the Hamilton Steelers are coming to play the Real McCoys Friday night for first place. Uh, in Dundas. In Dundas. Yep. At, at what time? 7:30 JL Greitmeyer. There you go. If you got if you need something to do on a Friday night, it's it's a good night out. Go uh, go to look. Don, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Have a good night. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. 
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.